0: I'm Ben Armstrong. For today's episode, I'm really excited to share another interview with you. Dr. Clem and I recently had the opportunity to interview Pastor Jack Howell of Trinity Presbyterian Church here in Norfolk, Virginia. During our interview, which will air in two parts, we were able to hear Pastor Jack's personal story, the justice and mercy ministry at his church, and his thoughts on worship and Advent and preaching. Let's join Dr. Clem and Pastor Jack Howell for part one of this special interview.
1: So it's good to have Pastor Jack Howell from Trinity Presbyterian Church here in Norfolk, Virginia with us today.
2: Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for having
1: me. So we just want to get to know you a little bit more, and maybe you'd be willing to share your story with us in terms of, just tell us a little bit about your family and uh, your journey from, you know, those initial days of ministry preparation to how you actually landed and started church planting in Norfolk, Virginia.
2: So I was raised in Stafford County, Virginia. Uh, back then was um, kind of an exurb of Washington, D.C., about 70 miles to the south, and uh, it was very rural. Yeah, it was a great little town. Fredericksburg was uh, about 17,000 people back then. So you really knew everybody, everybody kind of knew you, and uh, it was a great source of just community support. I felt really loved in that little community. Had a great little Southern Baptist church, that we went to at least three times a week. And it's very formative in my life. Uh, you know, it was a suburban, safe, overwhelmingly Caucasian, uh, just, you know, homogenous world that was, you know, sheltered in many ways. I had a, like a strong public school education and really nurturing teachers. Uh, my dad had a more public role in the community and that uh, certainly played a role in how my one brother and I were raised. Uh, mom stayed home. and was just this kind of fantastic mom for boys. And uh, I don't know, went from Stafford to uh, Vanderbilt University in downtown Nashville. And uh, really feel like I learned how to learn there. Uh, profoundly grateful for Vanderbilt's commitment to the liberal arts and the humanities and I really just got it handed to me uh, in terms of how I read and how I wrote and how I thought. And uh, that was just really, really great training. It was just really very formative for me. During that same time, I got involved in this Presbyterian College Ministry called Reformed University Fellowship. And that uh, that's the College Ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America. And they were very interested in us understanding our calling as students, and they really sought to help us cultivate um, all of learning and all of knowledge and all of truth and all of beauty as giving glory to God and all pointing toward his His beauty. And so all the, the, the secularity, the liberalism at Vanderbilt was um, counterweighed by a really robust historic orthodox training and discipleship that we got there. Uh, our campus minister, one of RUF's distinctives is they they believe that the church should go to the campus. And so they send an ordained pastor to the campus to preach and teach and disciple. And he was giving us all sorts of books and things to read to help us think through kind of the, the assaults or the threats on, um, historic Christianity, which really were more, you know, the, the takedown of the Potemkin structures of fundamentalism and those needed to be um, taken care of. I, I really went through a crisis of faith in my freshman, beginning of so- sophomore year of college when the foundations of fundamentalism really began to slip away and they, they, they could not stand the withering heat of kind of an elite academic non-christian university and it was into that vacuum that ruf played such an important role in this community of faith all these students who were helping me say now there are good reasons to believe the Bible's true and there there are helpful ways for thinking through how your professors are living by faith similarly to how you're living by faith so met my wife in college that was pretty great uh, she and I got married six weeks after graduation, and uh, we taught school. We were dorm parents, coaches at the oldest boarding school in America, west of the Allegheny Mountains, and uh, it was there in northeast Tennessee that I met kind of my lifelong mentor. This uh, Then, he was in the USA, Presbyterian Church USA. He later went into the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and He used to stay in our apartment because his daughter was my counterpart in the women's dormitory and he couldn't stay over there. So, um, he would stay with us and he's the guy that just very gently, winsomely helped me understand infant baptism and the doctrines of grace a little more gently. Uh, and that was, that was really formative. We went to Montgomery, Alabama after that. And I taught at a private Christian school down there. I taught a history of Christian thought, which was just really wonderful for me to to have to dig a little more deeply, not just in philosophy, but in kind of the greats of the Christian past and to recover more of an appreciation for uh, a dependence upon the church fathers, the patristics, uh, some of the great medievalists. And I just, I found that personally incredibly invigorating. Went from there to Covenant Seminary. Uh, That's the... The National Seminary of the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, you know, worked in a church, uh, took an MDiv, and from there, I really wanted to be an RUF minister, truthfully, and um, I was offered an opportunity to interview at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, and that's all I'd ever wanted to do, and uh, flew down there, and I thought I had a great interview and great time with the interim campus minister and met a lot of college students. And, uh, before I landed back in St. Louis, the senior pastor of Park City's Presbyterian church had called my pastor and said, this boy is arrogant. He is arrogant. And we want nothing to do with him. And so my pastor left a message on my answering machine. There were answering machines back then. And, uh, he said, I, I need, I need you to give me a call this evening. And, uh, and with that was gone, the opportunity to do RUF and, uh, I had an elder in our church who was assigned to me, who really said, I didn't want you to do RUF anyway, I want you to do church planting." i had never thought about church planting. And so he personally paid for me to take several church planting classes. And then he got the church to pay for Rebecca and I and my wife to go to the church planting assessment center, which in our denomination, you have to be approved assessed in order to plant and uh, we did not want to do that at all and uh, and our elders really said we really think you should. And so we did. And um, and it, yeah, it was a challenging, but a lot of people go to assessment center and they love it and it's just so encouraging. And, Ours just felt like a couple of root canals with a colonoscopy. Uh, And, you know, I'm sure they were coming after my self-sufficiency and independency and pride too. But back then, back in, we call them the glory days, Jack. um, Everybody that wanted to plant a church in the PCA would fly into Atlanta. And they would do this little, like, dating apps, so to speak. This is before apps too, by the way. And they they would sign up to meet with every church planter candidate that they were interested in. And so we were asked to stay and these people came in and you know, we talked to the core group in Boise, in Sacramento, Henderson County, Nevada, Huntington, West Virginia. But this guy stood up and said, I'm Horace Lamb. I'm from Norfolk, Virginia. I hope you'll give us a chance. And I had wanted to be a pastor in Virginia since I was 15 and had tried everything to do it. I mean, I really had tried. I had tried to start RUFs in Virginia. There weren't any then. I had tried to apply for every solo pastorate that was available, tried multi-staff churches and nothing was happening. And, um, He and I met that evening and we stayed up till the wee hours and just fell in love. I mean, it was love. His vision for this church plan and our vision for pastoring were just unbelievably alive. I I couldn't believe it. I woke Rebecca up and I said, this is it. And she's like, Norfolk, where? And we, we changed our travel plans. We flew from Atlanta to Norfolk and, uh, Met with this team, little core group in Horace and Cindy's house, about 12 to 15 people, and just fell in love. And that was, I mean, this is a long story short, but that was kind of it. So we moved here in May of 98. The rest is proverbial history.
1: Yeah. Were the parents part of that original group that you met with when you, that was a Calvary Presbyterian, wasn't it?
2: Calvary Prez was our mother church. They paid half of my salary for the first year. They gave me Horace as an elder. I mean, about the most supportive sweet church in the world. Who did you ask about? I'm sorry. I
1: no, I asked about uh the parents. Uh Charlie Perrin. Oh yeah. Boy, that's yeah. that's kicking it old school right there.
2: Yeah, yeah. Good well, work. Really that's going to really attract all your podcast listeners. That's
0: <laughs> that's right. Blew up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah Viral, right.
1: viral, viral. <laughs> a viral moment here with Jack Howell from Trinity Presbyterian Norfolk. Now that's well, we always enjoyed knowing about that connection because we're 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 pretty close with the parent family. So uh, that was always a sweet uh, connection for us to think about. I really appreciate what you had to say about the liberal arts, and it wasn't until uh, later in life for me that I began to appreciate the liberal arts and to realize how, how important they are for even ministry preparation. And um, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but, you know, for anybody contemplating a ministry pathway, I thought that a liberal arts education is really ideal. And then get your seminary after you've gone through, you know, a program like that, I think it will just broaden you and deepen your your understanding, and like you said, help you know how to study, how to read, how to think.
2: I, I think unless you're really narrowly gifted as an engineer, you know, in math, in the hard sciences, I actually think the liberal arts are um, are ever increasingly important uh, because of how they teach people to think, process, write, articulate consolidate and synthesize information i mean those are going to be your managers you know visionaries i i don't know how i don't know how anyone can do like life in a world that is changing as quickly as ours without a deep or at least a significant understanding of history right i just think that would leave us so unmoored i don't know how a pastor could really grow in terms of empathy and concern without having read broadly in fiction mm-hmm. and having to to really learn how to inhabit another person's mind and thinking. I don't know how you really learn about injustice in the world or the brokenness of the world without studying economics and its collision with history and political science. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I am just profoundly grateful for how it changed me. and continues to shape me.
1: No, you're absolutely right. Well, those are, I always felt like a liberal arts education would allow you to pivot no matter what came your way, and uh, rather than being so singularly focused into one particular outlet that, uh, you know, it's just hard to know which way to go or how to think about how to process it.
2: One of the things that Covenant Seminary, uh, like when I was going the late, early, mid-90s, They had just begun to institute this thing where they made everybody take this English Bible test. And they had just started that, you know, like late, like 88, 90, somewhere around there. And they did that because they realized all these people were coming into seminary without an adequate foundation of just Mm -hmm. English Bible knowledge. So if you didn't meet a particular score on this test, you had to take two semesters of just kind of Bible knowledge, Bible content review. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm
2: And my guess is is that's only more pronounced today, oh yeah. you know, in terms of how little uh, the people that are interested in ministry have grown up in the church or been formed and shaped by the local church and, and so I can appreciate from that perspective why someone would want to be a, a Bible or a biblical studies major um, I, I I think yeah I, I would want to do that sort of study, and I would encourage my children or. People wanting to go, in, the men and women wanting to go in the ministry from our church to to try and do that through the church and to mm-hmm. um, and then use that study at a master's level. Mm-hmm. But well, know, have, what do
1: I know? Yeah. Well, don't aren't two of your children currently enrolled in a liberal arts education program at UVA?
2: Uh, sort of. Sort of. One graduated, and I'm going to put "graduated" in quotes uh, in May, and uh, number two is going to graduate, Lord willing, in May. So they're actually both applying to graduate schools right now, Um, younger two are 10th grade and 8th grade here in Norfolk's finest public schools. In fact, in fact, three of my kids have attended um, Maury High School, which is, as you know, the oldest continuously operated high school in in Virginia. So I I like that for
1: history. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Ben had a question for you.
0: So from 1998 to 2020, you've been uh, working at Trinity, and then uh, COVID-19 hit. And so what are some of the takeaways um, you've had from the pandemic we've experienced?
1: Well,
2: um, I think part of the reason I love history so very much is that history leaves you unsurprised by current events and it puts current events in a domesticated perspective. I, um, Around 2000, I kind of went through this phase where I couldn't stop reading about the Black Death, about the bubonic plague, and read a half dozen or so books about the plague, and specifically started to burrow in on how Christians, the church, pastors, responded to the plague, acted during the plague, and. Not surprisingly there's there's a very mixed bag on that, you know in early medieval Europe. Um, there are priests, pastors who fled priests pastors who capitulated and refused to do final rites and you know uh, extreme unction, and then there are pastors who were incredibly courageous and gave their lives in the service of the dying and the sick and you know having done all that reading, thinking about that, um, I think allows you to be a bit more resilient when a pandemic comes here, um, not just because of scope and intensity, it's it's so insignificant. Remember Norfolk was, was really significantly challenged uh, in 1850 uh, by the yellow fever and uh, my Old house in West Ghent was about, I don't know, an eighth, a quarter of a mile from a yellow fever burial field, which, um, you know, they won't ever be able to develop anything on because it's a mass grave. Of course, right behind ODU, they still have a street called Quarantine, which is, you know, named for where they would take people coming in from the port or others. And, you know, one of the heroes in Norfolk uh, was a pastor at First Prez. Uh, Norfolk, Pastor Armstrong, and he sent his family away to the Northern Neck, and uh, he stayed in Norfolk and ministered to everybody uh, that was sick or dying during the Yellow Fever. This is 10, 10 years for the Civil War, and became kind of the pastor to the city. And those sort of examples really uh, steeled me, gave me great courage and hope for how we might begin to think about it. I mean, I... I do feel like the Lord, uh, in some ways brings those historical currents to the, to the front. I mean, for us, with the children that we have, I mean, we, this this is going to sound terrible to say, but we really enjoyed our time in lockdown. And we, all, all four of our children were studying, um, they're all completely self-sufficient in terms of studying. And my wife and I were working and we had supper every night together, game nights all, I mean, we, everybody took a turn, like this is your night for family entertainment. And, you know, everybody kind of had to be creative. We just kind of depend on each other. We were exercising more than we had done as a family. And uh, I mean, you know, with my kids as old as they are, I'll never have that opportunity again to get that sort of day in, day out rhythm. I just thought, I'm not saying I wished for or was happy for the pandemic in that way, but in God's providence, I had tremendous time as a family. You know, I think it's been exceptionally hard on our staff. Uh, Keller talks about what 9-11 did to his staff consequently and uh, how he was warned for how the first year, 18 months, could all be driven by adrenaline and then it would just really hollow out your staff and I think you know that advice of just the marathon not the sprint was helpful like every other pastor we were just like throwing everything up against the wall like what can we do Uh, I found that I found that very energizing I found that to be a great opportunity to be creative and pastoral and inventive with very limited resources Um, so I mean we started live streaming our service i mean i'm like a pca guy i'm an older guy we would have never been live stream ever been live streaming our service i started writing a blog i would have never written a blog before but i had all this time where no one would meet with me i couldn't meet I, we, I, we all went leaving the house and so this is a really so there's a good time of ministry it's a hard time of ministry uh i really i, I had this blog post idea I don't know if you listen to Colin Cowherd on Fox Sports Radio. One of the things that he does every Monday is, you know, where Colin was right, where Colin was wrong. And I have this blog post idea for where Jack was right and where Jack was wrong. And one of the ways, one of the many ways in which I was very wrong about the pandemic was I thought everybody in our church would either know someone who died or knew someone who was sick. And by God's grace, you know, Southeastern Virginia has not, to this point, had that sort of experience. There are a handful of people that know of someone. Uh, I can only think of two people in our congregation that have had COVID-19. And, you know, I think its consequences have been uh, far more economic, far more psychological, far more emotional than they they have been at this point in terms of health, wellness.
1: Do you think there's anything that you'll continue doing that you started doing, like that live stream, do you see that being now a uh, mainstay at Trinity in the days ahead? And so post uh, COVID, post-pandemic, where do you think will stay? I mean, I think uh, for those of you
2: that have, you know, watched our live stream, uh, I'm, I'm talking to you, Mom. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think the the mime you know, and, and maybe some of the juggling will probably stay. We found that to be just wildly popular <laughs> as, uh, as people have tuned in. I mean, people think mime is, you know, this lost art. So we're, <laughs> we're bringing it back, Jack. We're bringing it back. Uh, so, yeah, I do think, I, I don't know whether we ever go back to non-live stream for lots of reasons. For those that can't or shouldn't come out, for those that, and we have, as, as you know, in Tidewater, a whole lot of people that have moved away. Uh, With the Navy, and they're all over the world. And, uh, you know, to get these little emails from people tuning in from all over the place was uh, deeply gratifying and encouraging. My sense is we have learned that we can make decisions more quickly and more nimbly. I hope that that continues. Things that we deliberated on forever and would have, you know, taken a preponderant amount of time with our elders, we can just kind of make decisions quicker. You know i think we um we have to continue to figure out how do you do community formation how do you do spiritual development when more and more people are absent from or distant from not just the church gathered but from the the church themselves from one another that makes it harder to figure out those delivery mechanisms for how do you get people in word and prayer and fellowship but you know we kind of asked all of our community groups to to think about taking a year-long break and doing single sex groups of four to five and just meet less often outdoors more flexibly and just let's pray read hang out together and you know those have been very surprisingly very popular i don't know i don't know if we go back to all community groups if we go back to a hybrid of that i mean i think we'll have to you know wait and see i mean i there's a lot that the church cannot do without being together. I mean, there's a lot of mercy justice, for instance, we can't do. There's a whole lot of community building. There's a lot of assimilation that we can't do without meeting, gathering. So, you know, there's things to to think about down the road. we got a long time, I think, before we have to right. think post-pandemic.
1: Sure, sure. Well, speaking of mercy justice, uh, I know this is something that Ben and his friends, and well, I mean, I don't mean to say it's a generational thing, but I know <laughs> that was a bad intro. <laughs> we can splice that out, Ben, can't we? <laughs> but speaking of mercy and justice, I know Ben has a real passion for this, and I'm enjoying deepening my own understanding of it. Our daughter has participated in it with um, Trinity, and I helped with uh, a little bit of cleanup one time. But but anyway, uh, so just tell us about the Mercy Justice Ministry at Trinity trinity and how it got started and you know maybe what are some of the goals and objectives of it
2: well the truth is the truth is i didn't care about mercy and justice when i moved in norfolk i really didn't i did not feel like i was equipped uh, to think about mercy and justice as a dominant category in the life of the church or the pastor i really had a very very limited understanding of the kingdom of god truthfully when i graduated from seminary I'm not saying that's my seminary's fault. I'm just telling you, I didn't get it. I didn't get either of those things. And I hadn't been taught it at all in my church background growing up. My mom has an unbelievable mercy heart. And so she was always caring for immigrants, uh, for the very, very impoverished in our community. And that was often met by my father and my brother and me with, a lot of appreciation, a lot of respect, but not nearly as much engagement. And um, so when I came here to a city like Norfolk, which you know has just so many needs that are so visible, uh, unlike maybe perhaps a suburban context where you can put a lot of that uh, brokenness under a veneer of respectability or uh, comfort or ease. It's just, there's, there's nowhere to hide it here and uh and i feel like we we gotta do something we gotta do something and uh a big part of my story as you know jack is we started a tutoring program at monroe elementary in park place and we did it because i thought oh we got to do something here's let's just you know kind of be good do good feel good volunteer whatever it was not in any way cloaked in scripture or bathed in a biblical understanding of justice. It's just something I felt like we should do. And uh, through that, I met this young 11 year old boy who was assigned to me to be his tutor mentor. Now he didn't need a tutor. He was whip smart, is whip smart. And um, he figured out where we lived and he started to walk over to our house on his own and uh just hanging out and so before we knew it he was doing homework at our home i don't know a couple nights a week and then coming by the house almost every school day and then started having supper with us more and um you know we just had a baby at that point and two times uh he came over after really big fights in his house he grew up on um 28th street and uh and we ended up calling his grandmother and asking if he could spend the night with us. He spent the night with us. Before we knew it, he got and got in this power of attorney and, and he moved in with us. And we pulled him out of uh, Blair Middle School. Uh, he repeated the seventh grade at Norfolk Christian School. And we, yeah, put him in Alpha Christian for six years and high nurture, high support uh, high accountability and, and he really flourished there. And, and, um, and I say all that to say it was Malcolm that really taught me about mercy and justice because suddenly Rebecca and I were like, Oh, that's why we need a rec center. That's why we need stuff for kids to do after school. Oh, That's why there's a food desert there. That's why they don't have access to to good nutrition of oh, that's, you know, that suddenly our eyes were open very, very preliminarily, of course, to just how big the issue was, how large the scope that we were dealing with. And, um, you know, Malcolm, that we witnessed uh, being treated differently, poorly because of his race in our little city or in different places. And, you know, you just kind of have to wake up when it's one of yours, you just really, you know, you love who you love, and you hate to see stuff like that happen. And I think through Malcolm, and then an increasing study of the word, I began to see that you just can't escape mercy and justice in the scripture, that it's it's just not optional for Christians. It's actually incumbent upon all of us. It's a mark of our integrity as Christians. John would say it's a mark of true religion. Uh, James would say it's a mark of you know, true faith. Isaiah would say it's a mark of true worship. Jeremiah would say it's a mark of knowing the Lord. And so suddenly I was like, oh, th- this can't be something ancillary to, but has to be something central about who we are. And so we realized you know, we needed help mobilizing you know however many people were coming to train at that point trying to find part-time and uh, paid staff to help direct opportunities from the city and connect those with uh, the volunteers from our church we started in park place as i said and uh, helped start the park place school there which was a, a school for children below um below average income that had uh, learning needs they were They were diagnosed with a a learning disability and um, the national institute for learning disabilities as you know is based here in norfolk and we implemented a program with nild and we pull these kids out of school out of the public schools for three years and do this intensive nild treatment and then put them back in public schools and uh, we've seen that school still existing uh, still hanging in there uh, still see that flourishing. We have focused, I don't know, probably more than a dozen years, maybe well, 15 years now in the Young Terrace community of Norfolk, uh, Norfolk's oldest, largest uh, federal housing project. So, you know, when you start to spend time in Young Terrace, uh, you, you can't help but start to learn about just the generational brokenness in Norfolk. Young Terrace was um, created by the Norfolk redevelopment housing authority, you know, it came up, I mean, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot that's been written about how NRHA has been used to, uh, to push, uh, blacks out of integrated neighborhoods, push them into less desirable areas of Norfolk specifically during the integration era, it was to. Uh, accumulate as many of them as possible so that they could avoid integration in the city of Norfolk City Schools, you know, during massive resistance in 59. So, you know, it's a 1619, it's a 400-year it's a, I mean, I mean, legacy that we have here in Virginia of, of structural impediments to equity and beauty and and, and and as my eyes began very slowly, however imperceptibly to, to recognize that, as we had begun to see you got to have mercy, we began to see you have to have justice too. And the two have to go together. You can't just do good without trying to think about the structures. That's why we tried to start a school, for instance, because we wanted mercy and justice efforts to not just be about um, doing good things, but like addressing the things behind the broken things, education, medicine, law. Why don't they have resources? Um, So we're in Young Terrace, you know, we've tried to to build empowerment in, and we started this great camp every summer to try and bring a really high quality arts sports camp to Young Terrace so that we can introduce them to sports they wouldn't have to art activities they might not have had otherwise through that seeking to build relationships um, with, you know, the families and community there to learn from them to, to see how we can serve and work alongside them. We've had great relationships. The elementary school PB young elementary, which is based in young Terrace, the rec center there, which is they're both right in the heart of young Terrace. It's been a great privilege that we have to be able to work alongside them. Uh, We've had, mentors in school and reading literacy partners and sol you know intensive help there um you know we 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 worked pretty hard for a while to talk about starting a free clinic uh yeah that would have been pretty neat uh that ended up happening kind of alternatively through these federally funded programs and that need was less met but the need is still acute you know when they're still overwhelmingly using the emergency department as their primary care physician and you know it's just at this point it's just such a an honor to be able to be a part of of norfolk's tapestry at all and to however modestly trinity's trying to to address these to say what can we do to think about homelessness differently, to think about educational disparities differently, to think about employment outcomes differently and access to law and medicine. I don't know, it's just, I I, I think I would love to see a, a free legal clinic in Young Terrace. I mean, I'd love to see a little grocery store around Young Terrace, of course. That's, both are kind of above my pay grade, but I could pray for those and seek to cast vision for those. But you know, where, where your daughter has been involved is, it's actually a good picture of, of where I, I, do, I do think Norfolk tries in, in many ways to do the right thing. And uh, one of the ways that the churches locally have tried to do that is through that NEST program of which you're aware and of which your, your daughter has run for our church for so many years and um, that Norfolk emergency shelter team. So every church synagogue in the community takes a week uh, I think Chesapeake does this too. I would assume Virginia Beach does as well. And we we found that that's a great way for churches, synagogues to partner together around the common good. Uh, the pastor of First Prez and I uh, helped start this Ghent area ministry a uh, long time ago now in Ghent where we were finding those that were experiencing homelessness would kind of go from church to church. And talk about, you know, real needs. And, uh, you know, but every church was being played. And so we found that um, if all of our churches supported this, this ministry, and we put all of our our clothing, our food, all those things there, and everyone that came to our doors, we encouraged to go talk to them. We thought we could deliver better care with better relationships and better uh, longitudinal follow up. And and we, that, that, you know, game's still going. It's, it's very helpful. It's extremely helpful if you're a church in the city. If you're, you know, you have people experiencing homelessness, come by the church every day, two to four a day. That's not at all uncommon.
0: So what would you, what would your advice be to someone who would be hesitant to become involved in fighting for justice or any kind of mercy um, because of, you know, BLM or, you know, this year because it's, you know, so political and they just want... It, you know, they want hands-off, we just preach the gospel, uh, we study the Word, um, but we don't We don't want to get involved, we don't want to get distracted. Um, what would you say to someone who would think that way? How does the story of the Bible—you know, you mentioned it a little bit—how would you summarize um, what the story of the Bible has to say about mercy and justice and the Church's involvement in fighting for that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I—well— I think our church, our our tradition has actually been uh, somewhat a part of that problem. Uh, So the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, comes out of the Southern Presbyterian Church. And uh, the Southern Presbyterian Church are the ones that emphasized so uh, extensively the spirituality of the church. And so just as you said, I mean, the role of the church is word, sacrament, discipline. Those are the marks of the church. The ministry of the church is just, it's word, it's prayer, it's sacrament, it's spiritual things. And if individuals want to be a part of things like that in the community, good for them. But that's never the role of or the function for the church. And uh, of course, so much of that had to do with the, the politics of the middle of the nineteenth century and the desire for the Southern Church not to get involved or have anyone get involved with them about the uh the trading of humans in slavery, the ownership of humans through slavery, but you know that that vestigial organ of the spirituality in the church remained, and you know it, it remained even in my Southern Baptist Church. I mean, I would hear regularly, "You will always have the poor with you," as a quote that they would give me. And uh, and so I, I I am I say all that to say I'm a latecomer to this. I'm not Mister Woke. Uh, I'm certainly not Mister Hip or Cool. But I, I I think the integrity of the church depends upon its humility, and its mercy. And um, and I don't think that our proclamation of a crucified, resurrected Christ uh, can have an audience in today's world without that. Now, remember, that's not a new insight either. I mean, what Rodney Stark has shown so extensively in his writings of the history of the early church is that the church grew so much through its mercy and justice efforts, through its commitment to care for the foreigner and the alien and love the widow and the elderly and to preserve the life of the unborn and the exposed and so on and so forth. And so for those that are like, I don't know, that's the the role of the church. I mean, you know, your church boards can talk about to what extent you, you want to do that as a church, but for the individual Christian, that, that does feel to me non-negotiable that, um, that you have no true religion without it, that you don't have a, a faithful presence in the world without it. And I just I just think that um, that like with everything else in America, we delegate that and we offload it. And uh, the extent to which you know we can get other people to do that for us, uh, we, we, we like to do that. I mean, the great thing about living in a city like Norfolk is you can't swing a cat around your head without hitting an opportunity. I mean, there are so many opportunities, so much brokenness. Uh, you know, my friends Chesapeake or the beach talk about the grittiness of Norfolk. And, it, you know, there's something to that, that... You're encountering people on the street. You're seeing the effects of a high concentration of poverty when you cluster them all together for generations and what that does to educational outcomes and criminal statistics and economic disparities. And like, all right, so what do we do about that? And I think, you know, everybody just gets overwhelmed by that. And I think what Malcolm has taught me or some of the relationships God's blessed me with in Young Terrace is, He's not asking me to change Young Terrace. He's not asking me to change Novak, but he is asking me to love this one person, just and in, in, in invest deeply, longitudinally in that person. And you know, when you pull Malcolm out of this public school situation, you give him all these opportunities of like a liberal arts education at a four-year university, and you you know expose him to great dental care and regular you know all those. Sorts. And suddenly, it's like, oh all this that we take for granted in my very middle-class, you know, kind of white, bougie existence, you know, it's it's just not the common experience. Uh, So I mean, I I think what we were trying to say at Trinity is number one, don't do this to feel good about yourself and don't do this to be self-righteous, you know, continue to do motive and realize that I mean, what Mother Teresa said, we have far more to learn from the poor than they have to learn from us. And any time we're doing mercy and justice, we have to have a posture of the learner, of the, the humble. We're not the white savior, we're not the white helper. Like it's our privilege. We're the ones getting gifted to help them read, help them you know, get access to dialysis, help them get access to a good lawyer, whatever. And, um, you know, so you kind of check your heart, you check your motives, you go with humility and an eagerness to serve and just to do relationship. And then I think what you'll realize is you'll be changed by it. Always go with somebody else, you know, but it's going to change you far more than you're going to change them. And that, that's the magic of it. I mean, that's the magic of following God in this adventure.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Everyday Story podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get part two of our interview with Pastor Jack Howell. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at the Everyday Story podcast. Thanks so much for listening. and We'll see you next time.